Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer or artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field, along with contest winners and a few surprise guests. Today, we're speaking with Mike Jack Stumbos. He's a winner in Writers of the Future, Volume 38, and he's got an amazing story, which we're going to be talking about, called The Squid is My Brother. Welcome, Mike. Thank you for having me, John. All right, so lots of things I'm very interested to talk to you about. Um, first off is just your career as, as an author. So our audience, is, for the most part, is aspiring writers or artists, and so they're interested in you know, how you got your started, what obstacles you had to overcome, and where you've gotten to now, and what you're looking forward to achieving down the road. So just that, how did you decide that you are going to be a writer? Yeah. I mean, I think like many, it's a, it's a long story that starts with a love of storytelling from an early age. Um, I definitely grew up with Star Trek and Star Wars, and my first medium for storytelling was action figures. And I was always trying to find ways to make more interesting and more dramatic things happen to the action figures. And I had, you know, three brothers several cousins who were often saying, all right, Mike, we need to get past the dialogue and get to the actual fighting portion. And I, I, I liked the dramatic tension, so that was me. Um, and in terms of, of writing out my own stories, I, I started doing that a little bit more deliberately uh, into middle school and high school. And at the age of 15, I was like, all right, I'm going to write a novel because I had read Stephen King's On Writing and he said 2,000 words a day, you can get a novel done. And I'm like, cool. So I went in with no plan at all. Um, and by the way, I do actually highly recommend this to a lot of the students that I do work with as, as a teacher and tutor, and I'll get to that later. Um, if you want to write a novel, like sit down and do it. It's not necessarily going to be, you know, a, a novel that will sell or a breakaway success, but it, it was a really good experience for me. And it ended up being a 240,000-word leviathan that is very shelved slash trunked. I'm, I'm not planning on doing anything with it, but, but I did it. I wrote 2,000 words a day for a while, and I was like, cool, I can do this. And because I didn't really know where to take it uh, or you know whether or not I could get anything else off the ground if I wrote a novel, I started writing for theater because I knew theater groups. I, I was part of... Uh, the Vancouver, Washington, and Portland, Oregon theater scene. And so I started writing plays, and I actually got one of my plays produced at age 17 and then kind of used that as a bridge into uh, college, University of Washington, where I continued to write for stage. And so I, I wrote 17 plays, and I had 10 productions from things that I'd written. And that was really the, that was the start of a lot of it. Um, but the plan was to become an English teacher because that, that also made sense in my head. I'm not sure if that was also inspired by Stephen King. Um, but <laughs> but somewhere along the way, that, that seems to be the right progression. And so prior to getting my master's in teaching, um, I wrote a folkloric uh, comedy novel based on a lot of the things that I was familiar with in Theater Beats, self-published it. It didn't really go anywhere, but I was like, cool, I want to have this done. And then I started teaching, and that ended up being, weirdly, the biggest obstacle in my writing. Because I, I I got seriously stuck in full-time teaching mode for years. And so I spent like most of the next decade not really writing anything because I was I was a teacher. I was in the class, and then when I wasn't in the class, my head was still in the class. So uh so yeah, it took a long time for me to to get back into the mode of I I want to to write and try to publish. So really the big movement toward you know, what, what I've been writing recently and the writers of the future submissions was in the last two and a half years. 
I I ran the numbers with my wife in terms of like, can I go to a more part-time teaching role or even substitute teaching and tutoring, still make the income that we need to, and have the time and more importantly, the brain space to be able to do the writing that I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I, I made that switch and I tried to make a deliberate commitment to do what it sounded like the professionals were doing. And I was like, all right, I'm going to write three novels a year and sell at least three short stories a year. This was summer of 2019. I had no idea how to make that happen. Maybe I shouldn't say no idea. I had very little idea how to make that happen. You just need to talk to Mike, Michael Anderley and he'll tell you how. That, that would be great, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I met uh, Craig Martell a couple months ago, so I had, I had a discussion with him about this kind of thing as yeah. well, which was very cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I... I, I set down that path, and, and did I succeed the first year of it? No. Um, but but I, I sold a couple of stories, you know, like uh, one in a charity anthology, a couple in, like, royalty shares. And then the next year, I had my first pro sale um, because I was just I was writing stories, like, over and over and over again. And every, every week, I tried to start a new short story and finish it by the end of the week. And I was trying to work on novels when I wasn't in the short story week mode. <laughs> and and during that process, I, I think I built up enough of the muscle memory that I was able to start sending these things in. And I mean, I could also go deeper into sort of the the connections of how I found out about sure. Writers of the Future, if you'd like. Yeah. yeah. So that one, I, I would actually have to credit. Uh, so Kevin J. Anderson and uh, Superstars Writing Seminars of Word Fire Press. I'm pretty sure that every fiction publication that I've had was directly or indirectly through a contact uh at superstars. And along with that, hearing about writers of the future, not just as a, uh, a text that I would actually occasionally use as a teacher to like, you know, have short stories that we could analyze in class. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had, this will sound very silly. I had no idea that it was something that was just like open submission for, for everyone. I'd vaguely heard about it. And I assumed, okay, this is this like big elite group that you get invited into or something. Mm-hmm. And, and then people were telling me, no, no, this is like this free to submit quarterly thing, and it's it's judged blindly, which means that you know if you really make a big mistake and make a fool of yourself, it will never get back to you. No one will ever know. And that's one of those things that I, I remember being afraid of when I was first submitting short stories. Even though it it's it's a completely non-issue. If you don't make an impression, you don't make an impression. Right. Um, but but yeah. So so then I, I reached a point with my my writing and submitting stories where I was like, oh, this feels like just great practice for submission. And so I took my current favorite sci-fi story at the time and sent it in. That first submission was a, a semifinalist. And that meant that I, you know, got to chat with Dave Farland and which which was, which was wonderful, just to have that encouragement. And and I was like, oh, this is a doable thing. This is accessible. This is not, you know, this is not one in thousands. This is I'm setting some of my own odds. And and I, I'm I can I can work closer and closer to that goal and that deadline, which was just, it was a very nice thing to do. Um, yeah. And uh, that's one thing that yeah. Kevin did, <laughs> Kevin Anderson. Mm-hmm. I mean, all the creators, the superstars were or are the contest judges and then, or having entered the contest. But most of them, like Dave and Dean and Kevin, Rebecca, they're all judges. And then there were, I know, like I said, Michael Anderley was one of those that created it. He's been on the podcast and he himself, is a very strong supporter of Rise of the Future, but it's, it was amazing. I, I attended Superstars for the first time this year and how much Rise of the Future was part of that, yeah. of, of the weave of Superstars, just from all the people that were teaching it yeah. or that were um, in there as, as uh, attendees. Yeah, I, I would say, especially in the last year, I've gotten the impression that in the science fiction and fantasy world, 
it's a very small world among the among the creators who are you know friendly and 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 want to be helpful and have that pay it forward spirit like that world i think is really small they're probably you know bunch of people in pockets outside of that world. But yeah, but a lot of the people who who really want to support the industry and support each other and support new writers especially, I think it's a very small world. So there's a ton of overlap between, yeah, writers of the future and and superstars and uh, and and uh, Dave Farland's Apex Writers Group mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, and that was excellent to see, just like kind of that that coming together of a bunch of different kind of people who really wanted to work together and help each other about something that we were all very passionate about yeah. um, in our in our delightful geeky ways. Exactly. That's great. So now you, um, English teacher, full-time English teacher, part-time writer, part-time writer, full-time in essence, mm-hmm. or at least major source of funding, minor source of funding. So now you're anticipating that at some point you're going to be able to totally cut the umbilical cord and um, not fly away <laughs> and get lost in space yeah. as a as a full time writer. How do you envision that curve going for you right now? I, I feel like I'm seeing it in the in the next couple of years, um, and a lot of it has been with the last eight months. Um, so let's see. I think it was uh, it was in May when the Writers of the Future quarter one winners were announced. So it was May 4th, Star Wars Day. I remember that one. Okay. Um, Star Wars Day was when it was announced. And and in the aftermath of that, I had a couple other stories that I sold at Pro Rates. And that summer, I, I was picked up by uh, Chris Kennedy Publishing. So that one was through, once again, this sort of overlap community of, of people trying to help and each other out. Too. And yeah, and in Superstars, I was running a, I was running a group called Nano Tribo. Um, it's like NaNoWriMo, but we were doing off-season 60-day events, and and I'd been I'd been running it for uh, most of the COVID time because you know I, I was a I was a teacher who understood online education, and I could run a Zoom room, and I could run like goal trackers and encouragement things, and I didn't claim to be an expert of publishing or even the craft side of writing, but but I, I'm I'm very comfortable, and I'm gonna toot my own horn. I, I think I'm pretty good at providing an encouraging space for people who are working on goals to come in and say, "Hey, here's what I'm working on today. Here's how far I am. Here's my next hurdle to get over." And then we would have some co-working time when we'd share our progress. And I, it was I think it was really helpful in the community. And it was through that that I met my editor Maya Cleave, who introduced me to Chris Kennedy and gave me an opportunity to pitch a science fiction series that was inspired by Star Trek, and and that was was this last August when it was picked up. So August 2021, had a very frank conversation with the publisher. He wanted to buy the trilogy, and we basically phrased it in terms of like, okay, if we can get three books in and polished by X date, then we can do a rapid release. And, and we did in December, January, and March, released three books. And uh, and those have, I, I feel like they've done well. I don't actually have a lot of metrics to compare to because mm-hmm. this is the first time that I've done something yeah. like this with the publisher. But they have you been... Know Chris Kennedy likes yeah. to do that. He likes to do exactly. that the, the cluster. Yeah, yeah, but they, they've they been doing well enough that he is uh, he's greenlit me for continuing the series. So I'm planning out four, five, and six. And I've been invited into a couple other universes in the Chris Kennedy Publishing Group. So I've got uh, about eight novels on the docket for the next two and a half years that, uh, <laughs> that I'm going to be working on, which... Is is very exciting because the more the more I'm coming out with new content, the more the readers are being directed toward that backlist, and and the more it's becoming feasible that this is going to be a major source of income. Um, and so even now, I have I have moved into more of a part time uh, tutoring role, 
Um, and I've started working with a private online academy. So I've moved out of public school entirely by this point. Um, and I'm going to be teaching in the fall on a more regular basis with uh, Aquinas Writing Advantage. Teaching high school writing, so composition mechanics and their fiction writing series, which I was hired on. And I, I was told very directly that it was because, you know, I had some credentials behind me. I was now a, a Writers of the Future winner, so award-winning author, and I had a, a science fiction series that, it, you know, people could see was growing. It, it's amazing how people don't realize the number of writing classes taught by writers, they might have a degree in English, but they've never published anything. Or if they have, it's been some superficial thing, but they're, they're not like actually having published something out there in, in the real world and had to sell and get real numbers. Yeah. And actually, I, I will say, uh, thinking back of the, the initial self-pub that I did of the folkloric thing back in uh, 2012, I did it because when I was a student, um, so middle school and high school, this may sound this may sound like a little bit annoying, but I was the the kid who would talk to the English teachers and say, like, well, why are you teaching English if you haven't contributed to literature? And and yes, I said things like that as a kid. And so it was, it was, I was a little bit obnoxious. I will admit that, but so, it was something that so stuck true, with though. me. And I wanted to, yeah, and I wanted to not be one of those teachers who who was teaching a thing that I hadn't tried to participate in. Do as I say, not as I've never done. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Good. All right. So... Um, I want to transition over here a little bit to your story that's in Rise of the Future, Volume 38, because I was fascinated by it. I read all the stories twice, having uh, proofread them. And the story, The Squid is My Brother, was, it's an odd-sounding name, but it makes total sense having, yeah. you know, gone through it and the whole thing of, I mean, I'll let you talk about it here, but it's, it's an amazing story on this subject, for me, what really stuck on the subject of bullying mm -hmm. and surviving it. So tell me about this, how you came up with the idea and, and a bit about without totally giving it away. Yeah. Um, so The Squid is My Brother is a science fiction story that involves a, a, a kid, a, a little girl who has been raised away from Earth on a space station where everyone has an alien symbiote attached to their spine because that is how they survive in the harsh environment. And then she's sent to Earth as, uh, she's referred to as a, a sort of transfer student at the time. That's the that's what she's told. Um, while something dangerous is happening out on the station. And she has to contend with going to a place where nobody has symbiotes and that they're not, they're not used to that. Um, and this is one of those stories that I wrote because I really needed to read it, and I'll, I'll kind of explain why. I, uh, at the beginning of of the quarantine and the COVID shutdown, so schools were just gone without any explanation of when they would be coming back or how we were going to support students or support families in between time. And so, you know, I was I was a teacher involved in the school system, and and we're talking, you know, uh, what April of of twenty twenty, and everyone was in this kind of weird high anxiety mode where they didn't know what to expect. There was this massive fear of the unknown with a plague that people didn't know how advanced it was going to get or how deadly it was going to be as it spread through. And and they didn't know when they'd be getting back to school. Everyone was kind of dealing with this new environment and this feeling of loneliness and this feeling of the unknown. And I really needed to read a story that dealt with these things and dealt with these struggles, but also had some message of hope. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't find that story, and so I wrote it. And this was one of those things that I just, it was, I, I had, I had to have some access to it, and so that was what that came from. And I guess the secondary part of it, like why would somebody write a story about alien symbiotes attached to people? Um, 
I have a habit of taking things that are usually in the realm of like cosmic horror or at the very least sci-fi horror, rubbery monsters-ish. Like, how can we make this accessible? How can we make this familial? How can we make this potentially even adorable? Um, <laughs> and that's that's just, that's just something that I like to play with. A lot of ideas are inspired by those kinds of what-ifs. And so those two what-ifs came together and and I wrote this story about the struggles of a, of an exchange student or a transfer student who's markedly different from the other students and having to deal with it. And a lot of the inspiration came from from yeah things that I I have experienced or witnessed as a teacher or as a student or as a friend of other students in schools. And so and so bullying does come up as a as a strong um, topic. I'm not going to say theme because you know this is in no way in support of bullying, right. but like. But when somebody is is notably different and not just different, but a kind of different that we don't yet have a way of quantifying or understanding, we haven't come up with a good way of labeling it or dealing with it or even protecting it in some ways, then then these forms of 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 misunderstandings and othering and teasing is is really damaging. And it's a very hurtful form of bullying because the person being bullied feels totally alone and they don't have they don't have those kinds of supports that I, I feel like there are a lot of things that once once we can kind of understand them, that we can put them into categories that make it easier to to protect and help and support students who would otherwise be bullied. But sometimes in the you know, in the early days or the unknown days of something, it's it's really difficult to provide that support. Yeah, I mean your story it wasn't just the kids. Yeah. You know, you, yes. got, you got the educators too that were yeah. like we're unable to deal with something different. Yeah. You know, so I mean, it, for me, it's really good. It wasn't like you're slapping me in the face with, okay, here's my, I'm trying to give you my message and this is what I'm trying to to show you. Yeah. But it, it was a great story. And this little kid, how how she comes to deal with it. And mm -hmm. you, I mean, her mom's a hero. Yep. You know, out in the space station, she's doing whatever she's doing. She doesn't know what she's doing, but she's a hero. Yeah. And, um, and everybody understands that. And so that's why, you know, the school, all, all the people are like, yeah, your mother's a hero, but you got to, you know, even how they relate to the uh, symbiote on, on her back, you know, mm -hmm. calling an octopus. She said, it's not an octopus. Yep. You know? Yeah. Was it Saturnian? Is that, or what was it that? Oh, so they, they refer to them as Neptunians. Neptunians, rather. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's the... Uh, from Neptune Station. So she right. was uh, raised on an orbital station around Neptune. In a way that's like it's very briefly touched on his backstory, but basically she just has this thing attached to her back that has some amount of tentacles and interfaces with with her, so that she can better interact with the world. Um, and and yeah, so the I think the first exposure, uh, you know, anecdote. Somebody says, you know, you put away the monster when you know this alien creature sort of sticks a tentacle out of her backpack. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so. I mean, that's good. So you answered the question of the inspiration of this, because that's, that's right. what would have caused that to happen, you know? So mm -hmm. that, that totally makes sense on that. So now you have uh, started a, you mentioned that you started a series. You gave a copy of it to me um, here at the, at the workshop, and I got through the first several chapters on it. So the first book here is The Signal Out of Space, and this is the first of three volumes that have been published so far. And it's amazing, because again, you you've got, a lot of times science fiction has, you got humans, how they tackle different things, and it's humans versus humans versus humans versus. Here, you know, and humans are known as the um, 
warring tribe. Mm-hmm. You've got these other <laughs> races, and they all have to work together to be able to defeat this other foe, which could actually, you know, create a problem for all of them. So this is a, a, it's a very interesting way, you know, it's, you said that you're inspired by Star Trek, mm-hmm. you know, so. Very much so, yeah. Definitely got there, but, it, but this is not fan fiction. No. By any shape or means. It was just, that was inspiration of that type of thing where you got all these different races working together. Yep. Um, so a little bit about that besides, yeah, well, I like Star Trek, <laughs> you know, that this came to be. Yeah, it pulled from definitely a few different science fiction and space opera inspirations. The The comparisons that I've made are Star Trek in particular, like uh, the Starfleet Academy. Um, and then along with that academy, I, I thought of the Ender's Game Academy and sort of the the mind games that the instructors will play with the kids who they want to, you know, they want to get the best out of them, mm-hmm. but they're also very willing to break them down in the process. And then a couple others were uh, the uh, the Expanse, which I actually hadn't read until writing the first two books from this. But but once you know, I had I had read some of that, I was like, oh, this is a good comparison for like mm-hmm. what kinds of people would like. Um, and then another one that came out as a comparison when somebody read one of my beta readers read this and they were like you should read A Long Way to a Small and Gray Planet uh, by Becky Chambers because of the way that the different aliens work together as opposed to being always in conflict. And and so those, I think, are some good comparisons for getting started. For me, I wanted to find a way to create more dynamics between the human and alien species other than just fighting or finding the, oh yes, they're just like humans, but with forehead wrinkles. Um, so I wanted to get beyond that. I wanted to find so, some ways to to bring these species together and just kind of play with those, those what-ifs and those archetypes of different kinds of creatures, cultures, societies, languages, and all of the ways that they might, you know, find symbiosis and also with the ways that they might clash. Um, but it's interesting when you yeah. see that. I also look at just in general, not that we're all different types of races, uh, mm-hmm. types of creatures, but on Earth, you've got all different cultures act not dissimilar to what you have going on there, mm-hmm. but even how, um, I think it was President Reagan that said it would require some greater threat to Earth that everybody start working together. Yeah. You know, and then to that point, you've got everybody fighting. It still has that that conflict that can be there, but it's subdued or it's, you have a greater purpose, which then gets everybody working together who would otherwise potentially be enemies. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. And there, and there is some of that in the series yeah. as well. Um, and in particular, the, the human beings ally themselves with a, a species that basically says, Hey, we have done some research on you. We've been observing you from far. We can tell that you're really good at blowing things up. We need people to help us blow things up. And in return, we will help to fix your environment and give you interstellar travel. So that's where this initial alliance is made. And it's between humans Paul Newman and... Uh... Yes, Paul Newman. Paul Newman is one of the... <laughs> yeah, between humans and uh, and a species called the teak. And the teak are basically like four foot tall hive mind cockroach-shaped things. And that was one that I'm like, yep, I'm going to take the hive mind insects who are usually the villains and I'm going to make them the human's primary allies. And, you know, in, in the brainstorming process and, and you know, kind of sending little scenes to, to alpha readers and being like, all right, what do you, what do you think of this? How would they interact with like, this seems scary and disgusting. I'm like, okay, how do I, how do I keep the four foot tall cockroaches from being disgusting? I'm like, ooh, I will make them like smell like fresh laundry. 
And that's one of those weird comparisons that comes up. And so, yeah, you know, one of the characters describes early on, it's like, you know, the teak would be terrifying to anyone who's afraid of insects until you're in their presence. And then they smell like fresh laundry and it's comforting. <laughs> and I was like, this is a sense that's usually not used very often in describing species in science fiction. Never Unless used. it's in a terrible way. And I'm like, I'm going to use this in a positive way. But yeah, so the so the This Fine Crew group of species, I wanted to play with the space opera archetypes. So I, I wanted to have, you know, that that big furry warrior species who's like kind of a cross between a Wookiee and a Klingon. I wanted to have the hive mind insect species. I wanted to have the cold-blooded reptile species. And I wanted to do kind of my own my own spin on them and then just not have all of them fall into here is exactly how a Klingon would behave. Hmm. Or, <laughs> you know, and, and so... And so that's what I do with the uh, the main characters in the This Fine Crew series. It's four characters of four different species, one human and three other aliens. And they're, the main characters are each doing something that's a little bit atypical for their species. They're, they're a little bit off. I mentioned the name more. Paul Newman, so mm-hmm. uh, let's go ahead. So, so I don't, sure. have, yeah. don't have people just like going, what? Paul Newman, yeah. <laughs> um, so Paul Newman is the is the primary teak in the story. So the, the teak... Um, the Jektitik, which is their name as it's written in the book, and everyone calls them Teak because it's hard to pronounce. They have names that are hive names that are basically a series of numbers and and their home planet. And so when Teak end up working with humans, they pick a human name, um, usually based on some celebrity who has uh, has been deceased for close to 100 years. And so this one in particular, who wanted to learn about humans and be like humans has named himself Paul Newman. And Paul Newman is a Paul Newman is a lot of fun. He is somebody who always has the very best of intentions and and actually doesn't doesn't really run afoul of anything when he's, you know, usually when you have the best of intentions characters, they say something really dumb and mess up a situation. But no, this is somebody who has really good intentions, wants to learn, and is going to just ask those questions all of the time to, to be like, oh, I heard you say this thing. I want to know about that. Please tell me more. Um, so Paul Newman gets to be this sort of eager, wide-eyed, learning child character in the story and is also, I think, the best lens for uh, for you know the readers to get to know the world. So that was very convenient for me and a lot mm-hmm. of fun to write. That's great. Yeah, so it's... I mean, I, I do a lot of podcasts, and so I read a lot of books and a lot of different styles. And it's fascinating. I mean, with having read your your short story that, that you that you put, The Squid is My My Brother, and now reading your story here, you definitely like the action. You know, you're definitely into not so much in The Squid is My Brother, but in the in the um signal out of space, there's I think your main human character is just like He's a speed demon, and he's yes. like he loves high adrenaline, and others who aren't used to it have to deal with that. Yep. <laughs> so, so you're like, are any of these characters or anything that you do there are stereotypical, or you try to take something and just do your own spin on this type of a personality? How does that go? Because he's he's obviously, um, I wouldn't call him stereotypical, but he's he's very much like I said the speed demon. He's like. Mm-hmm. What I think of like um, special forces yep. type of a guy. Yeah. Um, so to tell you the truth, the human character uh, Darren Lidstrom, who grew up in Detroit about a hundred years from now, uh, in some kind of like industrialized auto factory 
society who wanted more than anything to be a pilot and to find the fastest ships and fly them as as quickly and as far away as he could. Not necessarily to escape, but like just he wants to do this in kind of a, that kind of adrenaline junkie. Uh, tell you the truth, he was most inspired by my father. Um, really? So yeah, so my, my dad, I've, I mean, my dad has, uh, he is, he has certainly mellowed some on the adrenaline junkie, but you know, every now and again, he'll he'll tell stories about things that he was doing when he was younger, um, or even some things that he wants to do. Uh, but you know, he was somebody who chose his college because of the the ski slopes nearby. You know, so he wanted to go as fast as possible. You know, had the had the motorcycle until he had his first kid, and was like, "All right, get rid of the motorcycle." But but there was this sort of eagerness to be the the fastest moving person, both physically and also in terms of like, I want to grow, I want to climb, I want to accelerate. That that I, I really based on him. And my dad was also born in Detroit. Um, yeah, so my dad's a first generation Greek American, and you know, very interested in getting to know different people, but also wanting to be that 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 faster moving faster performing find uh find something to jump off of find a ski slope to go down <laughs> um yeah so and that and that was fun for me right yeah. just be able to kind of like dig into that psyche that was amazing yeah, yeah. and in a very positive way Dad, yeah, he's if a you're cool character this, yeah um <laughs> yeah that's that's totally cool so now on um so how's the sequence go so you got the first three books anything I don't want to say, okay, volume two, then as soon as I tell you about volume two is about, then all of a sudden you know what the ending of volume one is. But sure. in a way that you can talk about how how does the uh, timeline move forward on the first three books of Fine Crew? Yeah, so this Fine Crew, uh, the first three books are mostly about the arc of these characters, these, uh, these four aliens. I'm oh, sorry, one human, three aliens. I guess they're all aliens to each other. Yeah. Um, who are cadets in the Interstellar Initiative and trying to advance and get long-term commission on these exploration vessels. And so the trilogy goes through that process up until you know their commission and being able to leave the solar system while things are going wrong in the process. Um, so the signal out of space is at the Academy, Olympus Mons Academy on Mars, and there is a conspiracy going on there, and there is uh, an unidentified threat that if they don't figure out how to deal with, it will destroy the budding alliance before it has a chance to start. The next book, A Rupture in Time, using some of the threads of this phenomenon they've discovered in book one, uh, there there are some temporal mechanics that are uh, that are in jeopardy. So basically, the possibility of looking into the future using this phenomenon they've encountered... Um, could potentially save them from a calamity that they're seeing in the future and or could destroy them if they end up in a predestination paradox. And so during the next leg of their training, that is also kind of cut short in terms of, oh, we need to deal with this and or evacuate everyone from, uh, from you know, the training ship and go from there. Um, in the third book, uh, Seed in the Sky, this one is a little bit harder to describe without going into spoilers from books one and two, but Seed in the Sky is very much a culmination of the things started in books one and two. So dealing with the same phenomenon that was encountered in book one that gets a little bit worse and they deal with more in book two. And then in book three, after it seems like they've dealt with it in books one and two, um, it kind of calls back to uh, the original reason that the, that humans took to the stars. So the, the war that they were involved in where the Teak said, humans come help us blow something up. Mm -hmm. 
Well, the thing that they blew up isn't happy about it and comes back to Earth and it's attached to this phenomenon they've been dealing with from the beginning. Um, and so Seed in the Sky involves a, a strange object appearing uh, somewhere in orbit of our moon. So somewhere over Earth that quickly becomes, it grows big enough that it becomes visible to everyone on the planet and is one of those things that is like, this could not just jeopardize the Alliance or destroy an academy, uh, but, you know, could overwhelm and pretty much obliterate everyone on Earth if it's not dealt with. And that becomes the thing that they deal with in Seed in the Sky. Um, and the series from there is, is going to be more continuing missions. So I've, in talks with my publisher, uh, we're trying to set up books four, five, and six as easy entry points. So okay. not necessarily as standalones. They will still be a trilogy, but much more... Uh, here is an episode that you can get start to finish, even if you haven't read any of the others. So one, two, and three, I definitely recommend reading in sequence. But four, five, and six, we're trying to set up as as an easy entry point, so that if any of those do like really take off and go big, somebody could start reading at what is currently yeah, the most popular yeah. book, and then go back to the beginning. Well, that's um, good. So, yeah, that's is that a, a trend right now to do that? Because a series is a big deal, and yeah. especially selling three book contracts is like almost like the norm now. Yeah, I've I've heard that it is. A recommendation. Now, I I don't actually have enough data to say if that is a growing trend, but I'd heard it as a recommendation. I'm like, that makes sense to me. I'll give it a try. Um, and and definitely after uh, after getting involved in, in Chris Kennedy Publishing, like I've been I've been going to Chris as as a mentor in this process, and he's been really helpful with kind of like you know those those steps and guidance, and a lot of other people in the Chris Kennedy Publishing group. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, so that's been wonderful. Yeah. Mm. No, I actually met him for the first time this year at Superstars. I was on a couple different panels with him. Yeah. And um seems like a really, really nice guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's uh, he's definitely very driven to like you know, do everything that he can for for his authors to make sure that their books are as successful as possible. Because and you know, he will also say in, in kind of that, that glib offhand way, it's like, yeah, what what makes you money makes me money. And well, you that, know, that's yeah, totally right. But he's also yeah, correct. but I, I feel like he's been yeah, I feel like it's been really great to work with. That's great. Um, yeah. So now, um, with respect to Writers of the Future, so how long were you entering the contest? So the win was on my third time. So, okay. yeah, I had a semifinalist the first time. The second one was an honorable mention, and the third one was the win. It was the win. So have you, have you used any of the other facilities of the Writers of the Future, like the writersfuture.com, because there's the, the blog, the podcast, the forum, uh, obviously, there's the contest and writing course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've gone through the workshop. Um, yeah, really like the uh, the lessons. Uh, so yeah, the the online writing workshop with uh, with David Farland, Orson Scott Card, and Tim Powers um, teaching, as well as the the article. So I've gone through that one, um, and I've also used the forum to some degree. But I feel like a lot of the interaction with the writers of the future. Uh, group has been through some of those other overlapping support groups. Mm -hmm. um, one person in particular who's been uh, who's been a great help as just like somebody who's a few years ahead of me that I can talk to is Martin Shoemaker, um, and and I've been I've been working with Martin every chance that I can get whenever he's you know talking about uh, about dictation and sort of like yeah. you know getting out of your own way and being willing to do uh, improvisation in your drafts. Um, and so he's been kind of running a, a a group event for that through the Apex Writers Group, and and I've been 
showing up to those whenever I get the chance and like picking his brain about it. And uh, so, yeah, so there are definitely a lot of overlaps in the writers of the future community. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that that's probably where I'm, I'm pulling most of the resources there. But I've also been finding myself when I, you know, when I'm working with other writers in, in different support groups, I will tell them about writers of the future as just a, a great way to, you know, practice writing a story and submit it because you, you might as well, you've got nothing to lose and it's a great way to learn and get comfortable submitting stories. For sure, for sure. Now you've, um, you said you did the online course and you liked the videos. Was there any particular essay from Mr. Hubbard that you read that like stands out for you? Hmm, that is a good question. I really like the story of a hat. The oh, story yeah, of a hat one, the magic out of yeah, the hat. Magic out there of we hat. go, thank yes. you, yeah. Yeah, and and you know when I when I read the opening of that one and the I think it was the Ben Franklin anecdote, you know the um, for want of a for yeah. want of a horseshoe's nail poem, yeah. and I started talking about like all right, let's let's do that with another object, and and this was also in association with I think the Orson Scott Card video of like you know a thousand ideas in an hour, and I really like those because you know talking through that process of of idea generation is super fun for me, and I I always end up coming up with more ideas through those kinds of through those kinds of tasks. And yeah, that article is one of Orson Scott Card's favorites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> In fact, he did a whole podcast interview talking about that, that yeah. essay. Yeah. Yeah, and I I, I love Ender's Game. Those, uh, those yeah, yeah, just great novel yeah. to, to be able to dig into. I have yet to read the original short story, and I really would like to just as a case study to be able to compare them back and forth, and I, I, have, not, I have not found it yet, but I should, you know. I should figure out where to find the original short story. Yeah, it's an interesting story. I think I covered it also on the interview I did with um, Tom Doherty, the publisher of Tor, because he, I think it was in Texas they met, and Scott asked for an extension because it was another, there was the other story that was first, which is, um, um, maybe even Speaking for the Dead was the first one, and then Ender's Game came after that. But he wanted more time to actually to take Ender's Game and to make it more of a story to turn it into a novel. So Tom gave him an extension on it before doing, I think it was Speaker for the Dead. And so there was a, over lunch, they discussed it and it ended up turning then from a short story to a novel. And there we go. One of the That's best science fiction yeah. stories ever written. Absolutely oh. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And he's been a judge for 33 years yeah. or so, 35 years. Yeah. So he's, he's been definitely a good friend of, of personal friend as well as a great friend of the, of the contest for a long time. Yeah. So with respect to like advice or tips to um, the aspiring writer, because that's, that's who a lot of this audience is. So you're obviously an English teacher, so you've mm -hmm. got a, a leg up on writing and grammar and punctuation and all that kind of stuff. In the final analysis from your perspective, how important is that to get yourself launched? Is, is, a reason to, is that a reason to stop writing until you get a, a, a formal education in all this stuff to be able to do that? Or is it something that if you come up with a story, then someone else can help you, an editor can come and help you with that stuff? Like, I'm not sure how much you use an editor and how much it's like you're a one-man show now because you've got all this education under your belt. Mm. Well, so I definitely do work with an editor. And I think for me, having taught 
English and having like read a lot of people's writing, mostly essays, but like, you know, I've read a lot of people's writing. I've, I've had opportunities to critique and workshop it with a specific end goal in mind. Um, and I've also worked as a freelance writer uh, doing nonfiction articles. I was writing for a, a subsidiary of Amazon for a while and doing uh, informational articles for a site that was like Quora but never got as big. And and so I really liked having those opportunities in the more academic writing mm-hmm. to be able to kind of refine my craft and, and feel like I can I can reliably write 600 words on this, know that it will sound clear. That said, I don't I don't think that a formal education is necessarily required to tell a good story. Um, in my case, it helps the way that I like to analyze it, the, thing, the kinds of things that I'm interested in and the ways that I will uh, structure plots or set up characters or look at planting theme seeds in the beginning of a story. I, I will admit that I do do that in a way that feels like an English teacher to me. Mm-hmm. And that works for me, but that's my method. I don't think that that's necessarily required for everyone. And I, I definitely think that most people who are interested in writing will find that they benefit from some kind of editor. Even if they have brilliant control of grammar and mechanics, they will benefit from some other perspective of somebody who's able to look at their story as a product to sell. Because eventually it will be a product to sell, even if it came out of like a space of of inspiration and it came from your soul. It should eventually be a product itself if you're trying to sell sure. it. And and having that additional perspective from a professional editor is really helpful because they can address what things in your genre or style or previous things you've written, even if you've worked them for a while, are more likely to fit that sellable product. Okay, good. Now I have a question. I haven't actually asked this of anybody yet, but every now and then I'll hear people say, you know, write what you love, write what you love. Some people will say, well, I don't find anybody saying this, write what's currently out there right to a, a trend. But what's your take on on what you're writing? Like you said you were inspired by by Star Trek, mm-hmm. but it's not Star Trek. So is your are you trying to write something that you think other people are gonna like or do you write something that you just enjoy writing or and then people you know you're gonna find people that enjoy that because there's some people that like that type of story or how do you go on that? Yeah, it's a good question and it's a hard one to answer, I think, because I, I definitely have approached it differently over the course of the last however many years. Um, by now, I'm working specifically with a publisher and on a series that I'm looking at as a as a product, along with as a story. So I'm writing a story that I really enjoy. Um, I do genuinely love writing these particular characters in this setting, which makes it a lot more fun for me. And and I, I don't know, maybe eventually the series could go on long enough where I would decide that I'm getting bored of it. I don't see that happening yet. And I think as long as I'm no longer seeing that possibility, it will be awesome to write it as a product and as something that I love. Um, it's like Michael Andley with his Cretherian Gambit. Yeah. You know, he's just got, he just goes on and on and on, but there's just so much fun. Yeah. You know. Exactly. But yeah, for for short stories in particular, I, I think that it's a great idea for a short story because it is such a small commitment. If there's something that's fascinating you, that's going to like, you know, keep you up at night, if, trying to tease out this idea of how or why something could work on the page, great, write it. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. you, you don't necessarily need to be planning on a product for a short story because it's such a small commitment that even just the practice of writing it could be super beneficial. You might write a story that you would never end up selling but you learn something about yourself and about your writing process, and maybe it inspires a, another thing later. For something novel length, I think that if somebody is looking to publish, and this is, you know, I'm I'm of the school of thought that says that your first novel should be just for you, and it's a practice thing, and 
if you end up publishing your first novel after however many drafts years later, good for you. But but yeah, I think the first novel is a practice novel. Yeah, many um, actually established authors they throw away your first half million to a million words. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, I've heard the your your first million words are practice. And some people yeah. use less flattering words than practice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I and I think that's a totally fair way of looking at it. But at a certain point, if you're looking to sell a novel and and you've already had some practice under your belt then you do have to think about what kind of thing is going to fit whatever you're going toward in terms of genre market. I don't know which author I heard say this, and I don't think it's an uncommon thing, but they said that you know a lot of new writers either struggle with trying to follow a formula exactly, and if you try to do exactly what, um, I don't know, we could pick any kind of science fiction author, if you try to do exactly what uh, we'll use Michael Anderley is doing, you're probably not going to be able to churn out content as quickly as him or as effectively as him with the kind of marketing team or with the cover design. So it's not going to be picked up as well. Mm-hmm. Or if you're trying to go entirely opposite, if you're trying to do something completely 100% original, then nobody will, nobody knows you enough to have buy-in to something that's so weird and bizarre. And you know maybe lightning will strike. Maybe somebody will find that thing and show it to the right group of grad students at Princeton who will say, this is gold, we must make it a literary success. And okay, good for you if you're that one in you know, however many million. Um, but the advice was, write something that is 85% the same as you know the leading thing in the genre that you're writing, and 15% you. 15% different or original. And that was something that I had not heard in those terms before I'd started writing This Fine Crew. But after I'd heard it, I was like, this actually seems really appropriate because This Fine Crew does have a lot of uh, space opera things that I think people would expect to find in a space opera. A lot of the the basic plot structures and a lot of the species archetypes are pretty similar to a multi-species space opera like Star Trek, um, which will have the characters investigating some kind of uh, scientific or, in some cases, pseudoscience anomaly and figuring it out and resolving it in a way that doesn't get them blown up by the end. Mm -hmm. But there are things that I'm playing with in terms of the character perspectives and the different, uh, you know, culture of aliens approaches uh, that are different and are things that I haven't seen or been able to read in other... and other stories. And so it does feel like I'm following that sort of 85% of what people would expect and 15% of something that's me. So that would be, I guess, the advice that I would pass on from whatever author I heard it from. And um, Well, you're about ready to hear it from Aaron Hubbard mm-hmm. in the uh, workshop. There's gonna, when, at the very end, you'll be reading this article called Art. And in there, he says that art is the quality of communication and writing is obviously art. Yeah. And he said, originality can actually be the enemy of communication because if you get too original, it doesn't communicate. Right. You know, people don't know what they're looking at, what they're, in this case, what they're reading. Yep. So you got to have that, you know, you can, you can be original, but you've got to be able to keep in mind that you're, it's, it's a communication that you're actually delivering with your story. Yeah. And so that's the, that's the senior consideration is the quality of communication. So if somebody can understand what you're saying and then you can make your own voice heard on that, right. then that's good. It, he doesn't say 85, 15, right. but he does say it's that too much originality can actually make it so a person cannot understand what they're seeing, or in mm-hmm. this case, what they're reading. So Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, so that, that's one of, those, one of those principles or datums that comes up whenever I interview past winners, it, it's a, you know, even 20, 30 years, you know, having since one, say, well, what, what Owen Hubbard, well, 
art is the quality of communication. It's always stuck with me, you know, yeah. and, it's, and, it, and it's so true what you're saying there. You know, it's, that's, that's very um, observant, yeah. very astute there. Well, and I would also say the same thing for, uh, for The Squid is My Brother. That was one of those stories that I will admit there were some people in a writing group that I was part of who were also submitting to Writers of the Future who told me not to submit it because there were some things that it did were, that were a little bit weird and unexpected. And they were like, this probably doesn't fit the formula of a Writers of the Future submission. And I was like, yeah, but I really like the story. And I feel like it, it reads well to me. And and, and if, if it's a rejection, that's okay. I haven't lost anything. So I'm going to send it. And and I think, you know, the more I'm hearing different stories from other people who have won, because I've, um, I, I already knew a lot of the, the winners from this last year. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten to know them more since, you know, they've announced the wins and, and we're able to chat about that. But hearing their commentaries, it sounds like they're coming at it from a similar approach where they're not necessarily trying to follow what they think is an exact formula for writers of the future. They're aware of, you know, some of the the genre expectations and they're aware of some of the things that um, Dave Farland as the head judge particularly appreciated. But they're also telling something that is very interesting and unique to them. Mm-hmm. They're not just following a formula for the sake of formula. And I think if you follow a formula for the sake of formula, even if you do it really well, I imagine that the furthest you can get is honorable mention. Yeah. Because originality is a key part. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be within a framework that we've got here. Because, yeah. I mean, our stories are pretty much all PG. Yeah. You know, and we're not moralizing, but... It's got to be something that's going to be appropriate for middle school on up. Yeah. Well, and as somebody who's who's taught classes and lessons with stories from Writers of the Future volumes, I tend to look for ones that seem like they have something uplifting in them, even if it's not necessarily a, a beat you over the head theme, mm-hmm. that there's something that somebody can take away and be like, oh, this does give me some hope. This does give me some sense of joy. This gives me some sense of learning, even just vicariously through what the character is experiencing. And it's a positive takeaway. Yeah, volume 37 was a bit more uplifting than ever before just because of the pandemic. You know, mm-hmm. Dave was, like, very interested. Like, I I just need to, like, put something out there that people are just like, okay, let's just take a chill pill here, yeah. <laughs> you know. And um, But, yeah, that's what – originality is, is a key part of what judges are looking for. Carrie did a – I had a podcast with her, Carrie English, the first reader, and – and we've got meetings that we do on like establishing, maintaining the voice for Rise of the Future. It's not like, obviously, no book has, this is the theme of Writers of the Future. There is none. Right. You know, it's just, there's, that's why we can, we can honestly say there's something for any show of any taste in science fiction and fantasy in yeah, any Writers of so. the Future volume. Because even if I, I love one, five, seven, I, I couldn't get into volumes numbers three and six. But across the volume, there's always going to be guaranteed stories that anybody who enjoys science fiction or fantasy can be able to, uh, to yeah. enjoy. So now you've got the Squizman Brothers science fiction. This fine crew is science fiction. Mm-hmm. Do you ever touch fantasy? I do, actually. My first, uh, my first professional sale, uh, this was eight cents a word plus royalties, was a folkloric slapstick comedy fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> and and that was another one where people were like, I don't think you could write a slapstick <laughs> slapstick on the page. And I was like, but I think I did, and I think it works. Um, yeah, and that was a, a real Llewellyn Scone, and that was published in July 2020 
in Galactic Stew with Zombies Need Brains, and I'm actually in a, another upcoming Zombies Need Brains anthology. And Ariel Llewellyn Scone is about a tiny Welsh village that needs to collect dragon tears to make the best scones anyone's ever tried. Um, and and it's it's a it's a completely ridiculous little like fable structured story where everything is going to go wrong for the main character. Uh, but but in a distinctly funny way, just because of the convergence of how it goes wrong, and it involved a dragon and some folklore, and and uh, you know, and my my mom's family's English, and I I, I like pulling from that lore when I can. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so so yes, I do touch some fantasy, um, but I think I tend to lean a little bit more either folkloric fantasy, uh, or I will tap into sort of like the the urban fantasy and a little bit of a cheeky way. So I, uh, one of the stories that I. A novella that I sold was uh, Clarence Hemlock, Computer Wizard, and it's very inspired by the structure of a Dresden Files or Iron Druid story, but from the point of view of a wizard who works as a computer repairman in like a strip mall kiosk, people give him their laptops, he takes it behind a curtain, zaps it, and they're like, oh wow, how'd you fix it so quickly? It's like, oh, you know, just turn it off and on again. And then, you know, he ends up dealing with a baleful spirit that's trapped in a dead man's laptop. Um, but I, but yeah, but I wrote that one because I'm like, I I, I have no idea how they fixed those those computers. There must be some magic going on there. And because, you know, in both uh, Iron Druid and Dresden Files, they keep saying that that magic mucks with technology. And I'm like, maybe there's a way around that. So, so you, you work to fix yeah. <laughs> that problem. <laughs> for aspiring writers, we're, we're down to our last like four minutes or so mm-hmm. here now. So with respect to aspiring writers, what advice would you have for them based upon what you've had to go through, overcome, maybe even some of your most severe hurdles that almost stopped you, but you're able to like pursue it regardless. Yeah. Um, one that I've been telling a lot of people lately, uh, because I've, I've had people ask me sort of how to get connected with people that can you know, help you get your stuff published. I've, I've been very highly recommending that people find not only writing groups, but but people who are like a couple steps ahead of them. Like I, I think everyone who's a sp- an aspiring writer wants to reach out to Brandon Sanderson and immediately be his best friend. That's difficult. Brandon Sanderson probably has a lot of friends lined up. Um, but if if you're looking in your own writing community and there's somebody who's you know a couple steps ahead is starting to to sell stories and publish things, uh, reach out to them. Ask, ask like offer to beta read. Ask if you can like you know, help promote their next book, be part of that process and like learn from them as they go. Um, that's something that I've been highly recommending to people because it's, it seems like, it seems like it should be an obvious step in retrospect. Um, and it's something that was really helpful to me once I started doing it. And and it very strongly Mm -hmm. coincided with me getting more things published and hearing about more open calls for anthologies. And, and yeah, so that's, (laughs) that's a big one that I would say. And also kind of the age old, you get better at writing by writing, find opportunities to crank out a draft of a short story, even if you're not worried about sending it anywhere. Um, and then on the short story front, because I've been working with some people on their first short story submissions, I tell them they want to get to the point where they're sending out enough short stories often enough that the sting of rejection no longer feels as strong. They're not waiting by their inbox refreshing every few seconds because they have enough stories in the air and they're mm-hmm. working on the next one. So no individual story becomes as precious once you've got five of them out, 10 of them out, 15 out at a time. That's great. So on um, your own process of, of writing, so you mentioned, I think, earlier 2,000 words a day. So is that what you're... 
Is that what you write when you're when you're writing? Is like two thousand yeah. words a day? Is I'm, I'm trying to do that on a regular basis. Um, so with the book launch, uh, so in March I. I had two book launches, so one short story collection, one novel, several events that I was hosting, and then going to conventions, and then eventually prepping to fly out to this, to the Writers of the Future conference. And so I only had 18 days of of like fiction writing time. In those 18 days, I wrote over 50,000 words. So that's that's about 2,600 words a day for a fiction writing day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm trying to make that more consistent. Like if I can, if I can ideally do an average of 2,500 words a day on an ongoing basis, then that's that gets me pretty close to that I'm going to write a novel start to finish in a couple months. Yeah. So that's the goal right now. Yeah. Good. I'm getting closer to it. That's excellent. That's yeah. well done to you on that. So um, for someone to find you, how, where would they go? Where would they go to find you? The best place would be my website, mikejackstumbos.com. Um, Can you spell that? Uh, Mike, Jack, and then the last name, S-T-O-U-M as in Mike, B as in Bob, O-S, dot com. And also, if you look on uh, on Amazon, if you search for This Fine Crew or The Signal Out of Space, then you can click that link and get to the rest of my uh, the rest of my author stuff on Amazon as well. Good. And of course, you'll be able to see them when you go to writersofthefuture.com and look at volume 38. You're going to see them in there. With the squid is my brother, and then his will be his name will be a hot link. So you click on that; it'll take you to also to his website. Well, thank you very much. It's awesome. Fun. Thank you. I knew it was going to be a great interview, and you've proven me correct on this. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The Writers of the Future podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Player FM, iHeart, and Spotify. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. The Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere else on Amazon. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to new and amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you.